Welcome to the January 2009 CFITrainer.net podcast. In this edition, we'll explore how the deepening financial crisis in the United States may affect the incidence of arson for profit fires. We'll also learn about going green and how that may pose a fire hazard and see how rope lighting may be a source of ignition. We'll also preview IWI's new course on expert witness courtroom testimony. We'll begin with the story dominating our news. The recession causing serious repercussions throughout the United States. The national unemployment rate has soared 7.2% and is closer to 10% in some states. Massive job cuts by major employers are being announced every day. Banks are in federal bailout. U.S. home values, the biggest source of equity for most American families, are in free fall. And for the third quarter of 2008, Zillow.com reported that U.S. home values continued to slide for the seventh consecutive quarter, declining 9.7% from a year ago and falling 12.8% since the market peak in 2006. Some areas, such as Southern California and Florida, have seen home values decline 20 to 30% in one year. Additionally, one-third of homes sold in the past 12 months sold for a loss, and 14.3% of all homeowners have negative equity. Will these harsh realities make arson for profit increasingly attractive to desperate property owners? With us today to discuss that question is Joseph Toscano, a certified fire investigator with more than 30 years experience, a former member of the NFPA 921 committee, and a member of the board of directors for the Insurance Committee for Arson Control. How you doing, Joe? Very well, thank you. Good to have you with us. I, I will jump right in and, and ask, what does a typical arson for profit scheme look like? There really isn't a typical scheme. Um, desperate uh, times uh, cause people to take desperate measures. Uh, the issues today uh, are, are issues that I don't think we've had to deal with, at least anyone in this business today had to deal with in their entire working careers. Um, we have, uh, we have what, what amounts to the perfect storm occurring uh, in most communities. Uh, we have people who um, are on the verge of losing their homes and many who have already lost their homes. Uh, for those who are on the verge, that's where the arson for profit issue is, uh, is the strongest. Uh, once a home is foreclosed, there's no longer an insurable interest and really no reason for anyone to commit an arson for profit. However, what, what uh, occurs at that point is that these homes become vacant and accessible properties, and they become targets for uh, vandals, for um, uh, kids in neighborhoods uh, who are looking for uh, something to do and find themselves inside a home that they have no um, right to be in and um, from there we have problems. We have communities who are uh, experiencing a lack of funding uh, to fund uh, more inspections of these properties, to fund investigative units and so the perfect storm continues to where arson for profit is not just the problem, it's arson as a result of these properties being vacant and accessible. Is there a link between the mortgage crisis economic downturn and the increase in arson for profit? Certainly there is. Um, it's a common sense link uh, that uh, when situations like this, uh, again as, as I said, the, the desperation situations arise, that people are going to weigh what their options are in terms of getting out from under the financial crisis. And um, arson is going to be one of those things that uh, people are going to consider. Hopefully, 
because of the uh, uh, emphasis that's been placed on arson, both um, in a public safety perspective as well as a prosecutorial perspective, that uh, we have taken a much harder line with arsonists uh, than 25 and 30 years ago, uh, hopefully people will weigh the risk of apprehension and not choose arson as, as a way out, but many do. Understood. So, if money may be the motive, what clues might an investigator find uh, in the documentation? Where, where should he or she look? I used to uh, tell investigators to always just follow the money, and um, I, I guess if you, uh, if you take that in the reverse, it's, uh, you know, follow where the money uh, has gone. Um, we always start with the insurance policy. If someone is committing arson for profit, uh, many of the clues that an investigator will be looking for can be found uh, you know, in the documentation that exists in the insurance company. Uh, understand that there are, there are really two silos of information in the insurance industry. There's an underwriting file and a claims file. Uh, what we're seeing now is we're seeing properties that may have been purchased for $600,000 and insured for $600,000, which have now dropped in value to uh, $450,000. Uh, mortgages on these properties that may exceed uh, the actual value uh, of those properties right now. Um, so you're looking at an underwriting file that may tell you a bit about what that property was worth and what it was represented to be at the time of purchase. In the claims file there are a number of documents that are very important. Um, one of those documents is called a proof of loss. Uh, in a proof of loss a person, uh, an insured, uh, will represent uh, all of the items uh, that were damaged or destroyed as a result of the fire. Oftentimes in these uh, documents, uh, people who are committing an arson for profit uh, have a tendency to embellish uh, the property that was damaged or destroyed as a result of the fire. Um, it's also important for an investigator to understand all of the documents that may be in a claims file and an underwriting file. I'm going to stick with the claims file for a couple of minutes. Uh, in a claims file, you'll have something called a notice of loss, and essentially it's uh, what an insured represents to the insurance carrier uh, occurred uh, to trigger the insurance policy to take effect. In other words, um, we've had a loss, there's been a fire, I have an insurance policy that covers that fire, um, and I'm going to be making a claim against that policy. Uh, oftentimes in that notice of loss will be representations that that person makes about what happened uh, and what they know about what happened and what caused that incident. Uh, it's important because people who have committed arson for profit have had a very difficult time giving consistent information to the different entities that will be investigating that loss. What I mean by that is they may give different information to an insurance investigator and different information to a fire investigator from a local jurisdiction, different information to uh, an investigator from a state police agency, um, and again, if you compare this information, oftentimes you find um, very uh, strong inconsistencies. Another document in the claims file that's very valuable in the investigative process is called an examination under oath, and that's when an insured uh, under oath gives a dissertation as to uh, what happened on the uh, on the uh, evening or the day of the event and what their knowledge is of certain uh, happenings on that day and and things that led up to and and followed the uh, the incident in other words it's a sworn statement given to the insurance industry 
uh, and oftentimes again has uh, and contains in inconsistent information. So the bottom line here is that it's very, very important for the public safety inf uh, investigators to understand what kind of information exists inside both a claims and underwriting file and how they can access that information and what to look for once they get it. So what are the key points of cooperation with the mortgage holding institution and the insurance company? Like what do you want to know and, and how can you get access to that information? Well that's an excellent question. In fact it's one of the biggest problems today in, in many cities is that um, um, it's very difficult to find out who is holding a mortgage on a particular property. Um, that, that kind of information is generally not listed in, uh, in, the, uh, in the files at uh, City Hall in terms of ownership of a property. And in fact, when many of these mortgages were, were attained by the uh, homeowners, uh, they were quickly sold by the originating bank, and it's very difficult to follow where that mortgage went. Um, so there really is no direct nexus between many of these mortgage companies and the insurance industry. Um, that area of communication is lacking and uh, what has been happening is as these properties fall into foreclosure and become vacant it's very difficult for municipalities to determine who's responsible for the property at that point and uh, so assessing uh, penalties or holding people responsible to secure these properties and and maintain the property until they're sold again is uh, near difficult in fact it's nearly impossible um, that creates a serious problem as well to investigators who, if there is a fire in these properties, uh, to determine who may have an insurable interest and, um, again, who the responsible parties are for the property. So what do we do? I mean, so what do we do? I've heard you talk about prevention and preparation, planning with different cities. Uh, if we, we um, create legislation uh, locally, uh, statewide, or even nationally that says, if you are going to assume a mortgage, if the mortgage is going to be sold, that that kind of information should be registered at the local uh, jurisdiction so that in the event there's a foreclosure, in the event there's a, pro a problem with the property, in the event there's a fire, uh, that kind of information in terms of who holds the mortgage and the history of, the, of ownership and transfer of that property will be on file. and. Um, if the property does become vacant, there would be somebody accountable for maintaining that property, for securing that property, and from preventing the kinds of situations that are occurring today. Thanks a lot for your time, Joe. We really appreciate you taking your time to work with us here at CFITrainer.net to do these podcasts, to get in touch with the folks who have the experience that you do, and communicate it uh, to all the fire investigators that log on with us each day. Well, let's move on. Going green is the trend that's sweeping the nation. One of the first steps suggested to consumers is switching from incandescent to fluorescent bulbs to save energy and money. Electronic dimmer switches can also save energy, but many consumers are not aware that these two energy-saving measures don't always mix. Not all fluorescent bulbs can be used with dimmer switches. Dimmer switches work by turning the bulb on and off faster than your eye can perceive. The action causes problems with many of the CFL bulbs. When the dimmer is in the lowered position, the non-dimmable CFL will continue to try to light, which can cause the ballast to overheat and possibly catch fire. 
In at least one documented case in Cumberland, Maryland, a CFL dimmer combination was determined to be the cause of a devastating house fire. Some CFL bulbs do work with dimmers, but many consumers are not aware that they need to purchase a special bulb rated for dimmers. In fact, different CFL bulbs are designed for different uses. Consumers often do not read the fine print on the box to determine what application the CFL is suitable for. Therefore, fire investigators should be aware that CFL bulbs, despite their cool touch, can be the cause of fire when they're not used as intended. Thorough investigation of any CFL bulb in the area of origin should be part of the investigator's standard protocol. Due to its flexibility and ease of installation, rope lighting has become very popular for landscaping and interior design use. The October 2008 issue of Fire and Arson Investigator included an examination of rope lighting as a source of ignition. The article dispels the notion that rope lights are simply a string of 0.5 watt light bulbs that could never overheat. Instead, the authors argue that rope lights should be treated as a heat tape that dissipates heat at a particular watt density and also emits photons. Therefore, rope lights should be subject to the same cautions as heat tapes. The article identifies a serious potential issue with rope lighting. The practice of coiling up unused length and stashing it in ways that can trap heat, especially when under insulation. The authors have also seen through experience that installers may be unfamiliar with the UL requirements, that installers may use a longer light length than required, that older product that does not meet current standards is still being sold and installed, and that distributors continue to sell splicing kits even though UL and the manufacturer prohibit them. The authors also conducted tests that demonstrate how improperly installed rope lights can cause fires. The full findings of this rope lighting research can be found in the October 2008 issue of Fire and Arson Investigator. We end our podcast today with a few reminders of upcoming IWI training opportunities, investigations of electronic and appliance-related fires, a scientific approach, will be held Tuesday, February 17, 2009 through Thursday, February 19, 2009 in Glen Cove, New York. This session covers topics such as appliance fire investigation in the legal arena, electrical heat generation mechanisms, design, construction and maintenance of appliance, and forensic examination and fire investigation. Effective investigation and testimony will be held Tuesday, February 24, 2009 in Phoenix, Arizona, Topics will include protecting an investigation from spoliation, improper methodology, and alternative theories, the latest scientific and legal challenges to fire scene investigations, the skills needed to be an effective expert witness, and how to present demonstrative evidence. The IWI training conference will also be held in May. It's May 17th to the 23rd, 2009 in Arlington, Texas. Early registration offers the advantage of a discounted registration fee and an opportunity to get lodging in the host hotel, the Sheraton Arlington. For more information and registration forms, call the IWI office at 1-800-468-4224 or visit firearson.com and select training calendar. That's all for this month's IWI podcast. Have a good day.